The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, and welcome to today's Barron's Live. I'm Abby Schultz, a senior writer at Barron's Kenta. With me today is Warren Bogmanis, who is a partner at Two Sigma Impact, which is the impact investing business of the hedge fund Two Sigma. And we're going to talk today about workforce impact, what it is, why it matters. Welcome, Warren. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you, Abby. Um, before we get started, I just want to remind everyone tuning in that you can write in your questions throughout the session, and I'll try to get to them before the time is up today. So, Warren, can you just start out maybe by telling us more about Two Sigma Impact, you know, and the business's focus on workforce as a social impact issue? Yeah, absolutely, Abby. So, um, so I mean, Two Sigma Impact started with the observation that for the last 50 years or so, uh, companies have spent a lot of time and energy trying to cut workers, cut worker pay, cut benefits, uh, cut number of workers. And I think the underlying observation behind that was that America was fat in some way. American companies were fat in some way and that they needed to be made more efficient. And so without debating whether that in and of itself was a good thing or a bad thing, I think investors trained companies and management teams to think of workers as a cost to be reduced as, a, as opposed to a place to be, uh, place to invest. And that's reflected in um, you know, the, the way in which um, your workers are accounted for, that's reflected in, in our tax structure, that's reflected in all kinds of different different ways. And so Two Sigma Impact um, was started with the idea that um, we've done, you know, if that was the pro if efficiency and slim workforce was the problem we were trying to solve, we've done our job. Maybe we've done our job too well. Uh, and that um, investors are gonna do better uh, in the future by supporting companies and management teams and by using their roles on boards uh, to help support more investment in people. Uh, and that, you know, basically the idea is the biggest problem that companies have today is not too many workers that they pay too much, but not enough workers to grow. And so workforce impact uh, in, in the way we think about it is the practice of supporting companies in their efforts to invest in their people. Um, well, that that's actually a good place to maybe start with my next or to lead into my next question, which is really just about this pretty wide recognition, I think, that people have today that labor issues are pretty important. Um, uh, we've seen what the pandemic has done to to companies, to workforces, uh, and, and to people. And so maybe, um, maybe you could, yeah, just elaborate on what you've been talking about, just broaden out, like, what, what are some of the challenges that today's workforce is facing and that today's companies are facing? Well, it, it's true. I mean, it's pretty difficult to pick up a newspaper these days and not see something about workforce issues. I mean, in January, I think there were something like 4 million people who quit their jobs as part of what people are calling the great resignation. Yeah. I think there are a million, uh, 11 million job openings uh, right now. Um, and so you know, this is an area that has become under much greater focus um, you know, lately because of those numbers I decided and also through COVID as people focused more on the challenges of being a frontline worker in America today. But this is not a new problem. In fact, we set out to build this business before COVID uh, because we believed uh, there were two primary things that were happening. The first is that companies you know, were no longer creating good jobs. They no longer had, uh, first of all, 
Um, they were struggling to attract and retain people of the right level of talent that, that they wanted. Uh, and, and in addition, um, something like 50% of American workers today describe themselves as disengaged, um, but, um, but one in eight workers um, are, are describe themselves as so disengaged that they actively work against the interests of their companies. That's you know, one in eight workers is spending time working against the interests of their companies. So this is a huge drag on our economy. So one observation was that um, this thing's going on and private equity, the place that I come from, uh, has actually been you know, a, a big part of this, a big part of this issue. Private equity employs about 10 million people in the companies they own in America today, and has cut a million workers in the past decade, which gives you a little bit of an idea of how we think about, you know, uh, uh, the, this issue. So one observation was, um, what if we used um, the tools of private equity to invest in companies that, um, that actually took a different view of workers, that it, and we gave them the permission to think long-term about these kinds of issues. So that was, that was one observation. The second observation is that um, the workforce economy is changing rapidly. The, 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 the future of work, the skills that are required to compete in the workplace of tomorrow are changing at, a, at, a, at an accelerating rate. And yet our education system is changing much less quickly. And so we felt that there was also an opportunity to invest in businesses that were helping to close that skills gap. Uh, because the idea, you know, the sort of 1950s idea that you you know, go to high school and complete high school, maybe you go to college and then you go work at one company for the rest of your career, uh, is that, 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 that is you know, dead and buried. Uh, and that the uh, most people are going to go through a, a, a whole host of different kinds of jobs over their career. And they're going to need to get upskilled um, if they want to be competitive in that kind of a workplace. Uh, and so and we think there's a, a big role for private sector solutions and all of that. So yes, the COVID issues have, you know, have, have accelerated a trend that was already happening. Um, but these issues are not new ones. I mean, in fact, the, the decline in workforce participation has been going on for a decade. It's at stubbornly low levels today, but that's uh, but that's a trend that's been going on for some time. So, how, as an investor, can you approach this? I mean, what what is it, yeah? What what can you do as an investor? So, we when we decided that this was an issue that we felt like we could address using the tools of private equity, we spent a whole bunch of time working with one of the major consulting firms, thinking through. What is um, the evidence behind you know, how to invest in people and when it leads to good things for companies? Because we were looking for that intersection between you know, where the social, you know, things that are good for workers, intersects with the commercial, things that are good for our companies. And, um, and so we spent a whole bunch of time looking at all of the research, you know, hundreds and hundreds of case studies and academic reports and all kinds of things that showed what kinds of investments under what kinds of um, conditions uh, lead to uh, you know, both happier workers and more productive companies. And it turns out there's a you know, large body of work around all this stuff. But what that led us to was a definition of a good job that we think is faithful to that ambition that sits at the middle of that intersection of the social and the commercial. And our definition of a good job has four factors. The first is fair treatment. That's what most people spend their time talking about when they talk about workers, they talk about pay. Um, but, and, and for sure, pay is important. Benefits are important. Um, the, you know, the way in which your other terms of your employment, how you're scheduled, et cetera, these are important issues. That's just one of four factors. The second is a promising future. That's everything that has to do with training and career path. The idea that your company is helping you to build a career. The third one we call psychological safety. That's the feeling that you can actually, you're participating in a work environment where your views are valued and where you're getting the kind of um, your feedback that you need to, to, uh, to progress. But you feel like an important part of, of, of a company. 
And the last one is a sense of purpose. And that's the idea that you're motivated intrinsically by the things that the company does. You know, most companies do exist for a reason, but they do a very poor job of communicating that, that, that reason for existing to their employees. And, and, and I think that's, a, yeah, that's one of the most profound tools at countering this disengagement problem I mentioned earlier. So when you have these four things, uh, you know, fair treatment, promising future, psychological safety, and a sense of purpose, that's when people are actually at their most productive, where they're bringing their best selves uh, to work. Um, so I understand. I mean, so one thing you're one thing you're looking at, as you said, is just is making sure that companies, or rather, the workers, have the skills that they need for the for the jobs that are out there. So that's um, that's a that's a really important issue. And and I'm wondering how you are addressing that. What are you looking at? What kind of companies are you looking at? And maybe if you could give us an example of a portfolio company. Yeah, so our first investment's in a business called Penn Foster. It's an investment that I'm personally really, really proud of. Uh, what Penn Foster does is it, it trains um, people to get middle wage occupations. So things like you know, nurses, assistant, pharmacy technician, you're, you're training in medical building and coding, also in the skilled trades, electricians, plumbers. Um, and they train about 400,000 students per year at an average cost per program of around you know, $800. So, so imagine for a second, Abby, that you were you know, working in a restaurant during the pandemic and you lost your job and you've been working in a low wage you know, job. So you've earning $25,000 a year or something like that. You go to Penn Foster and for a cost of $800, you can get catapulted into the middle class. Um, you can be certified to do this, you know, a job like a pharmacy technician where you're getting paid 40, $50,000 a year and where you are on a path to potentially becoming a farm, pharmacist one day when you would make you know, um, you know, considerably more money than, than that. And so this is, I think, one of the most powerful vehicles uh, at, at sort of you know, bolstering the middle class that exists in America today and one of the lowest cost vehicles. And our ambition with that business is to really help to use data and technology to drive outcomes for students, to, to really fulfill our promise of helping students to get better jobs so one of the many benefits of, of, of um, working at Two Sigma is that Two Sigma employs about a thousand people in data and technology roles and has tons of capabilities in terms of helping use data and technology to discover new things. And, and that both that sort of culture as well as many of those capabilities are helping us to um, drive better outcomes for our students at places like Penn Foster. So it's a really exciting uh, opportunity and, and one where the social and the commercial I think intersect in, in a way that is is um, is very gratifying. I think for for the for the folks at Penn Foster and for us as investors. And and the other piece of it is, and and you touched on this, and when you were talking about the, just the very the elements rather of a good job is um, really focusing on workers and um, and and I know that that's another area that you look at when you're when you're investing in companies. So are there is there an example of of how you approach that? You know. Um, helping companies, you know, boost the number of workers who are willing to come to work for them <laughs> and yeah, being so, an example of that. Yeah. So one of the biggest areas of, of, of challenge right now in our, in our workforce is there aren't enough uh, people uh, to fill all the spots that we need in the healthcare profession. Yeah. So, you know, I'll give you an example. We need a, about a million more home health aides in America in the next decade. And this is a place that's notoriously hard to, uh, to hire for. And so we invested in a business called Circle of Care. And, what, and their primary business is they do um, speech and other forms of therapy 
uh, for kids primarily in a home setting. So it's you know pediatric uh, home health. And, and, and again, this is an area where unfortunately, there are many more children in America who need home health, um, you know, a speech therapy at home, than there are therapists that, that, that can perform it. And so our company, Circle of Care, will grow as fast as we can attract and retain uh, therapists. Uh, incidentally, the, the company also does autism therapy and physical therapy and occupational therapy. So, so and, and all of these areas are facing the same constraints, which is there's not enough therapists to treat all the children that need help. And so um, a business like that um, will succeed in proportion to how good of an employer it is. Um, and so uh, at, at Circle of Care, we're looking at all those different elements that I mentioned. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is most exciting is um, that the, the Circle of Care has launched a, a thing called EBH University, which is a, a, a training program that you know, for, for employees of Circle of Care to get certified for higher levels um, of treatment, which obviously come with higher levels of pay. And that's an exciting feature for, for therapists. And the more we can do things like that, um, the more we'll not just be able to attract the best talent, uh, but we'll be actually not only retaining the best talent, but also drawing more people into this line of work because we're looking at the world through the eyes of the worker, um, which is something that I think most companies struggle to do today. And so what sorts of things are they doing to, in terms of looking, looking at the jobs through the eyes of the worker? Yeah, so again, it's, it's, it's really those four things. Um, and, 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 it's, and, it, and by the way, it's using the capabilities of our uh, you know, of Two Sigma uh, to, to do it. So it, it's, by the way, it starts at recruiting. So one of the things that, um, that we've used data science for, for you know, data science and technology tools is let's identify all of the uh, therapists out there that are certified to do the kind of work that, that, that we do uh, in the geographies that we do it. So let's actually go out and make sure that we know who all those folks are. And let's actually go and try to um, you know, talk to them directly about the value proposition of coming to work for us. Okay. And, then, and then the next thing um, is trying to make sure that the terms of employment for these individuals make sense. So that's competitive pay, that's flexible scheduling but also focusing on these other things that I mentioned. So um, can we help them with their career? Are there training things that we can do um, that will help them to advance their own goals? Can we communicate more completely about the mission of this company and why it's an exciting mission, why this is a, a fulfilling place to work and why the values that underlie the, this business are exciting values to propagate out there in, in, in the world. So it's, it's, it's really just kind of looking at these four areas and then trying to apply them to the uh, individual workplaces of the companies that we own. I see. Well, and and just in general, I, I'm curious about the kinds of things that you do as an investor, as a private equity investor, uh, to work with these companies just to achieve their. So you mentioned data and technology, of course, and and the and that kind of, you know, helpful like kind of grounding that you have that you can gain from that. But what else do you do to to to, you know, really help these companies succeed? Yeah. So. We, we start um, you know, thinking about this when we're looking at a company in diligence so before we've made an acquisition. And, and we endeavor to, um, you know, our objective is to understand as much as we can in that phase about the leadership and organization of the business, what their values are, what their mission is, and then how are they performing across these, these things that we care about, um, these things that we think are motivating to workers and lead to long-term value at companies. So there's a whole sort of diligence piece of this. The biggest thing we're looking for there is values alignment with the companies. You know, do 
the people that we're looking to, to partner with, do they actually care about these issues? Do they see the world in, in similar terms to us? Because if they don't, it's going to be it's going to be a struggle for, for both of us. And then once we own them, um, you know, we spend a bunch of time doing diagnostics that are more in depth because you can do more with the company once you own it. Uh, and one of our, our favorite tools is, is a thing called the, the Voice of the Worker Survey, which we can conduct at all of our companies every year. Uh, and that survey, again, is built around those four factors. If there's other questions that we ask, but the idea is when those four factors are active in our workforce, we consider that to be a good job. And we endeavor to create as many good jobs at our companies um, as we can. So where are we falling short? And then how can we address those issues? So another great example, we own a business called Wholesale Supplies Plus. What that business does is it supplies um, goods and services into the, you know, the, the crafter entrepreneur market, meaning the people who are making personal care products, candles, soaps, uh, wanting to create the next Burt's Bees, which is a growing part of the personal care space. Yeah. And um, we have a big uh, uh, warehouse of people, you know, employing roughly 100 people who go and pack boxes uh, for this business. And, you know, historically, um, this business was founded by a highly motivated, you know, uh, founder uh, who was a crafter herself and who built this business from the ground up. And, and, and everyone who worked there felt attached to that vision. And, and, in, and after that business got big enough and it sought your capital from private equity, I think some of that spirit has died away. And so we're now uh, spending more and more time with workers. We've got people on our team doing shifts inside of the warehouse to try to figure out what combination of aligned incentives, the right kind of pay, as well as other forms of motivation will lead to a more satisfied and a more productive workforce of that company. That's so interesting. It's a really, really hands-on hands -on work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, actually one question I had was, uh, you know, uh, in covering impact investing and the, and the various kinds of vehicles that are out there, um, I often see a lot of funds that invest across a slew of social issues, environmental issues. I mean, some focus, some invest in both or just social or environmental, but, but invest not just in one aspect of it. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious why you made that choice to just really dive deep into workforce impact. Yeah, so I, I you know, you're right, Abby, that for the most part, as impact investing has gone more institutional, I mean, I came from helping to found, um, uh, a business called being capital double impact which was the one of the first i think uh yep. maybe the first um impact business at a large private equity business and and i think um you know a lot of those um early uh, efforts started with fairly broad mandates i think i think because it was a new thing um i think we all knew that we were trying to you know we're trying to figure out where the the, the real uh, value was going to going to fall and, I, and by the way i think those strategies many of them have been very successful um my, my former partners i know are uh, are really onto something and I'm really proud to have been associated with that business. Um, but I felt like there was real value at getting really specialized uh, at really understanding the intersection of the social and commercial in one area. Uh, and I felt like uh, workforce was a place where private equity probably had the biggest gap between where the potential was for the future, where we, where the industry is uh, today. Yeah. And so I felt like um, studying that workforce issue in depth would lead to a, um, I think a more focused strategy uh, for us uh, and a better measurement for our, um, you know, for all of our partners, better measurement of this good jobs uh, creation, because one of the things about this, this workforce impact, um, uh, you know, ecosystem is no one at this moment agrees on what a good jobs definition is. 
Um, and so we felt like by really diving in deep into this issue, um, we could help to lead uh, in this ecosystem on that definition and how to measure it and, and how to link it to the, the other things that investors care about, like uh, you know, uh, financial performance. Right. And so that, that was that's the that's the endeavor. And I and I do feel like even after you know, two and a half years now, just focusing on one issue and just investing around one issue, I still feel like we have a ton to learn. I mean, this is a very complicated. You know, humans are complicated. You know, spreadsheets and and numbers are actually relatively simple, but when you're dealing with humans, it's complicated. And and, and that that really is the challenge of the S and ESG. Like, how do you measure things right. um, like social impact for humans? So, how are you measuring that? So. As I as I mentioned earlier, that this voice of the worker survey is a really powerful tool. It's not the right. only tool that we use, mm -hmm. um, but it is a powerful tool where whereby we pulse each one of our companies annually, um, and we do have a definition of a good job. I mean, it's it's basically when we get um, uh, the right answers to those four questions, we ask them in a couple of different ways. Um, we, we we feel like we can credibly say um, that's a good job in a, in a company. And our what we endeavor to do is to, to increase the number at our company. So that's the thing that we focus on. That's the thing that we report on. <clears throat> and that's the thing that we really talk about you know, with, our, with our management teams. Um, so in the two and a half years that you've been doing this, ha have you seen any <clears throat> like tangible, some tangible results? Are you noticing, are you, are you inching toward where you want to be with these companies? I'll, I'll say that... Um, I feel very much like we're inching our way towards it. This mm -hmm. stuff is complicated. Yeah. Um, you know, we've we've only owned our you know our the, the company I mentioned before, Penn Foster. We've only owned that company now for a little over a year, okay. and every other company that we've owned is less than a year. Okay. And these things, you know, because we start with diagnosis, um, and and then we build an action plan, and then we start trying to implement it, and that's the phase we're in for most of our companies. Um, we don't yet have concrete uh, output in terms of we did this. And we, we evaluated this, we found this gap, we did this, and then this is what changed financially. But what we have seen is a, a change in culture, a change in the leadership uh, and its approach to workforce issues. We've changed you know, everything from the way we're doing compensation on the warehouse floor to the way we're training people at Circle of Care, to the way we're communicating our mission at Penn Foster, um, to the way that we're doing um, you know, leadership really everywhere. Um, you know, sort of this, this idea of psychological safety and how to create you know, comfort of people sort of you know, sharing their views about the company upwards. Yeah, I feel like we've done a good job across all four of those things, but the hardcore returns of linking these things to financial outputs, which is that's really the magic. You know, that's uh, that's still a little ways away. Yeah, yeah, that make that makes sense. You are it's early days. Um, so you touched on this a little bit about there's really no magic bullet to like kind of creating these better matches between workers and companies, but. But yeah, you've done a lot of research on this, um, and I'm I'm wondering, you know, what makes a worker satisfied and a company productive and more valuable? I mean, you know, we've been talking about these these various things, you know, that 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 can make a worker satisfied, but uh, but making a con a company productive and more valuable and and delivering financial results that also seems like a tricky part. Um, can you talk about this intersection and how do you how do you achieve that perfect match between the two? Well. I'll say there's, you know, one thing I'll, I want to make clear is I don't think there's any sort of one single silver bullet for any of this stuff, mm -hmm. and this stuff is, is, is complicated. But one of the things, yeah. one of the mistakes I think investors make is they always start with this idea that it's all about pay and that pay is a zero sum game. Like that's, I think that's the departure point for <clears throat> most investors, because if I go and increase pay tomorrow for my workers, 
you know, the next time I report my financials, my profit will have gone down and nothing else happens. So we don't record happier workers or more productive workers. We don't record that on our balance sheet anywhere. Right. So, um, so I think one of the challenges we have is that's the mindset that people bring to workforce issues. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll, I'll, and, and, and by the way, just look at how, how, how the public markets behave. Um, Home Depot early in COVID announced that they were going to do things for their workers, you know, invest in safety, danger pay, all these different things. Mm-hmm. This is a company that was founded on the idea that we invested our workers so we can provide better service on the shop floor. Yeah. And after they make this announcement, their stock price falls to the tune of billions of dollars. Uh, so they get punished by, by the market, even though that's their whole, whole strategy. Um, and, and so I do think that this reflexive short-termism with regards to workers is out there, especially because of this pay issue. Yeah. But, but one of the things that we miss in, in thinking about it that way is, um, you know, we've been talking about what's the, what's the reasons for the Great Recession. There's all kinds of discussion around that. Um, and and you know, people say, oh, people are retiring, or we've given them too many benefits, or what, what could it be? I mean, my own view is the reason why the Great Recession is happening, the reason why 4 million people quit their jobs in January is because most jobs suck, but they suck not just in terms of pay, they suck in terms of you know, toxic work culture or no future. And, and when people start you know, thinking of the world this way, they see all kinds of opportunities that aren't that expensive. And so um, someone did a study recently, so, uh, one of my friends out of uh, NYU did a study recently that, that said, um, toxic work culture is 10 times more likely to lead to a an individual quitting than a pay issue um yeah. and yet you know how much time do boards or management teams really spend talking about things like that how much time do they spend listening to their workers and hearing you know, could it be the case that i'm actually demotivating and, and scaring off my workers because of the culture i have and, and people think of that as a squishy word i actually think that mission and culture are two of the most important things that a company can have so but it's interesting, like you said, you know, when Home Depot f- fulfilled its mission by paying attention to its workers, they were punished by the market. So it's it's it seems like it's a real, a real cultural shift in the market that also needs to take place. It is, and, and we're inching towards a world where there's going to be more mandatory reporting by companies about workforce issues. There's right. already some stuff that's happened in that regard. I think that's going to continue, just yeah. like with all ESG issues. Yeah. And I think that you know we're hearing more and more folks, you know, um, asking questions about this. I mean, mm-hmm. I gave a TED talk on this topic a, a couple of weeks ago, and it's it's you know there's been a lot of it's generated a lot of discussion and inbounds from people saying, you know, how can I figure this out at my at my company? So I think that there's reason for hope, but we've got a large gap to close because it has been 50 years. If you look at the there's a, a terrifying chart that shows the link between. Um, the growth in productivity for workers and the, and, and, their, and the change in their pay over time. From World War II until the early 70s, those two things moved in lockstep. Productivity went up, workers got paid more. And since then, productivity has continued to grow and worker pay has been basically flat with small increases in the last 50 years. So there's a lot of change that needs to happen to catch up to where we need to be here. Yeah. Um, and why do you think the private sector is the, is be- and I'm assuming that you do, that is, is best equipped to solve this, you know, solve this, these mismatches versus maybe government or? Listen, I think there's a role for government. I'd, I'd like to see a higher minimum, national minimum wage. I mean, it's 725 today. It'd be, you know, um, that's, wow. uh, that's pretty low. Yeah. Um, but, um, uh, so I'd like to see things like that. Uh, I'd like to see the government mandate more uh, reporting um, uh, through the SEC for, for, for public companies. But I do think that the public sector has an important role to play because 
you've seen, and I wrote about this, I wrote a book called Accountable. It's about um, uh, the, the struggle to reform capitalism. And it talks about impact investing, but it also talks about government okay. and what government's done. And when governments try to get too into things like pay issues or trying to mandate certain things for companies to do, you know, there's been a lot of times where it's actually not worked that well. You know, for example, um, the government saw this growing gap between CEO pay and average worker pay. Yeah. And what they then the government mandated, okay, we're not going to report CEO pay. So guess what happened? Every CEO goes and says, well, now they now I've got benchmarks, and they go to their boards and say, look, look at these benchmarks. Um, I, you know, I, I'm, aren't I better than these folks? And, and then CEO pay continued to shoot up, actually faster than it had before, uh, as a result of that mandate. So I guess what I'm saying is, unless you can get the private sector on board and, to, and for the private sector to see this as in their interest, I think we're going to struggle to make meaningful change. Right. Um, and the other question I have is just like, uh, what can you? I mean, th what you're doing seems you know super interesting, but but what can you as one business? do to, to shift the conversation here? So we're we're trying to be really open source about all the things that we're doing. Mm -hmm. um, we had, had a conference, uh, hosted a conference a couple of weeks ago with um, Professor Zeynep Tan out of MIT who wrote the book called uh, The Good Job Strategy. And she's been uh, you know a, a great thinker on this stuff. And we hosted a whole bunch of investors and, and, and folks that are involved in this ecosystem to, to share uh, amongst ourselves what we're learning. And yeah. we plan to do a whole bunch more of those kinds of convenings and, and publishing um, because uh, we believe that if the things that we find here, um, you know, we'd love for more folks to copy, uh, you know, copy the, 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 the useful learnings, whether that's yeah. in private equity or beyond. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you. That's all the time we have, unfortunately. Um, I, this is really fascinating. Uh, and I, I think everyone listening in probably uh, learned a few things. Um, so I want to just remind our audience to join us on Monday when Barron's deputy editor, Ben Levison, and senior writer Al Root will be talking about the outlook for financial markets, industry sectors, and individual stocks. Uh, in the meantime, everyone, thanks and stay safe and healthy. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.